if we want to chart progress, where do we look? How do we know whether we're progressing or regressing? In terms of politics, it's really none of our business. We're not politicians. In terms of health, you know, we're not doctors. And the doctors are not doing so well themselves, but that's another story. So for the, for the, for the main body of citizens of this planet, what, what are we supposed to be charting? Where, what are we supposed to be measuring? We're supposed to be looking at moral improvement. That's all. Because that's where we have freedom of choice. So is the world getting better? Well, what do you mean better? Healthier or morally better? Particularly when the health is not so good and the politics is not so good, then we really need to improve in the moral arena. Are we improving? Vastly. You're not gonna see it in the news. It's not gonna be in the headlines but we are improving vastly. Just one little example. All the experts in Israel, probably everywhere else as well, all the experts predicted that with the lockdown, with the quarantine, husbands and wives being stuck in the house with each other, the divorce rate is going to go through the roof. And domestic violence is going to become out of control. The latest statistic in Israel shows that in the last 11 months, the divorce rate has gone down by 3%. Now, 3% is not, is not very impressive. But if you consider the 60% increase that they were predicting, and now it's gone down 3%, so it's actually gone down 63% <laughs> based on you know, predictions. So where did the experts go wrong? How, how were their predictions so off? It's not because they're not good with numbers. It's because they underestimate human beings. In general, we have a very cynical view of the human being. And, and that was not the Debe's view. The human being is an incredible moral being. Of course, things can derail us. We can get into very bad conditions. But at the core, human beings are good people. When forced to be good, we are very capable of doing it. When distracted and confused, we can become very neglectful and maybe even cruel to each other. But if you look at the world today, compared to 11 months ago, people are better, much better. I'm not talking about health. I'm talking about the morality, the decency, the menschlichkeit and to some degree, the spirituality. We can talk to people about God today who would never have listened a month ago 
10 months ago. Now God has become a comfortable subject, like intuitively correct. Even the resurrection of the dead has become comfortable, palatable. So yes, there's, a, there's an incredible in, improvement. So where are we going from here? We are going towards a much more moral world, a world that is really intolerant of evil, of war, of conflict. So we can, we can be confident and certainly optimistic that in a very short time, the world is going to mature into a much better world than we've ever known. And we're going to discover things about ourselves that we never dreamed of. And if you want, I can share one of those dramatic changes. But where do you want to go with this conversation? Okay, so, okay, let's do the conversation style. Um, I, I feel like, you know, listen, Rabbi Friedman, I, you know, you're preaching to the choir, quite literally, because uh, as you know, I've spent quite a few years researching at least the Rebbe's perspective based on the Hasidic perspective, which is an elucidation of the Jewish perspective on the human condition, on the trajectory of history, etc. But I do think many of our viewers will be taken aback by what you said. Um, and therefore, on their behalf, I'm going to push back slightly, if that's okay, on a number of fronts. Um, let's talk for a moment about relationships, because you make a fascinating point as far as statistics are concerned in Israel, and that's something that's really worth uh, analyzing and drilling down deeper. But at the same time, we know there have been statistics coming out of other countries where the opposite has been the case. Um, so maybe the first question is, how do you explain the context of that data? Because data requires context. Is it something to do with Israel? Maybe it has to do with the Israeli spirit. Maybe Israelis are, and by extension Jews, are, are really good at dealing with the most difficult of times. And this has proven to be one of those examples. Is that maybe what it's about? Maybe you can share a little more about that. There, there are obviously the stress, the additional stress to everything else in life that this, uh, that this virus has brought will produce some negative results, obviously. That is not surprising. It is not indicative of anything other than the fact that people don't like to suffer. The really amazing thing is that that's in the news. But the good stuff, you, you won't see in the news. So we really can't get our opinion of the world from the news. In fact, I'm convinced that when good news shows up in the news, Mashiach has arrived. So that, on that note, let me jump in because there's actually been a, an amazing trend, Rabbi Friedman, which according to you will demonstrate uh, just another phase in the furtherance of the manifestation of Mashiach's coming. And that is that many of the major news publications today have sections that are exclusively devoted and focused on sharing good news. Uh, absolutely, the Wall Street Journal here in this country, I think it's the Times, 
I, I have a list somewhere, but I'm talking about not minor, if you will, feel good, you know, newspapers, but hard core, high level, usually very cynical uh, papers. And I think that's actually fascinating. And it talks to your point that we are moving forward in this respect. We are recognizing the importance of positivity uh, in, in terms of uh, in terms of well-being, etc. Um, one of there's a well-known actor who is who has uh, created a whole show during COVID, exclusively focused to telling positive stories, feel-good stories, and that's very important. Um, I, I share in the talks that I give on the topic that the BBC recently published staggering statistics. They say that people who develop positive outlooks tend to live between. 11 and 15% longer than their more cynical and pessimistic, you know, pessimistically inclined individuals. So there's a greater shift and focus on positivity. That's no doubt the case. So let me share something a little futuristic. This is all kind of predictable. But what's really futuristic and unprecedented Consider this picture here. For 5,000 years or so, we have been laboring under the impression that we, human beings, are very fragile, very vulnerable, very dependent on God or on each other, and um, very needy. So here's the picture. You have many needs. Most of them you cannot fulfill by yourself. So you have to turn to others. You have to turn to God. You have to plead with God. You have to beg God. You have to promise him to be good. You have to hope that he's in a good mood. And then maybe he'll give you what you need. Otherwise, you're in trouble. Good luck. That fueled so many movements and so many sciences and religion, all fueled by the fact that we are so fragile and so needy, desperate for help. On the other hand, religion has created a picture of God as being perfect, invulnerable, untouchable, unreachable, unflappable, he needs nothing. He just sits there watching us struggle. And of course, when we misbehave, he smites us. But that's, a, <laughs> that, that's the picture of God. So we are extremely needy. He doesn't need anything. That's universal. From the beginning of time. In the near future, this is going to change dramatically because we are going to discover something really interesting. Human beings have no needs. You see, we're so overburdened with the amount of needs. Back in the olden days, our needs were simple. They were about five. Keep me warm, keep me fed, give me something to drink and don't shoot me. <laughs> Life was pretty simple. Hard to achieve, but not very complicated. But with time, we've added all sorts of needs. You need to get a job and you need to get 
uh, you need to pay your bills and you need to have a mortgage and you need to buy a car and you need to, it just goes on. And, and then the advertisements that tell you what you need that you never even thought of. You've got to have one of these and you got to have some of that. It's just becoming too much. So we go for therapy. Now, what happens when you go for therapy? You discover you have needs you don't even understand. <laughs> your mother never wanted to have you. So now you got to fix that. And your brother hates you. And it just goes on and on and on. So one second, I came here to be to be relieved of my needs and you're just giving me more needs. So in desperation, I go to religion. <laughs> I think religion will give me some relief, will give me some peace of mind. But what do you discover? Well, if you think you have needs in this world, <laughs> wait till you get to heaven, your troubles are just gonna begin. So, okay, I, I can't take this anymore. This is not working. The future of human psychology, I'm sure, is that instead of looking a little deeper and finding more needs, look much deeper and you will discover what Hasidus has been trying to tell us. You have no needs. You have none. You're a creation. Only a creator has needs. If you create a universe, you obviously have something. You're after something. But if you're the creation, what do you need? So children today are already expressing this. You ask them to clean up the room and the 11-year-old says, I didn't ask to be born. <laughs> What does that have to do with cleaning up a room? Well, if I didn't ask to be born because I don't need to be born, then why do I need to clean up my room? In other words, don't, don't tell me I need. That doesn't compute anymore. I don't need. Well, you have to get a job. No, I don't have to get a job. And what is the response to that? A threat. Well, you don't get a job. You're not going to have any money. You're not going to have a place to live. You're going to be out on the streets. You're going to get a disease. You're going to die. It doesn't work anymore. I didn't ask to be born. Don't threaten me with death. This is something so amazing. There is something much more divine in the human being than human. When you say, well, you got to survive. Nobody wants to die. We're all afraid of dying. You know, be gesund. You got to be healthy. That's the main thing. No, it's not. It's not. So the, the, the phrase, you need or you must or you should, gone. It's gone. I don't need anything. For example, do I need to eat? Oh, I need to eat. No, I don't need to eat. I Personally, I need to stop eating, but I can't. So why do I call it my need? 
Did I choose it? Did I design myself this way? Did I even agree to this? No. So why is it my need? Here's the story that uh, got me thinking on, along these lines. A young boy leaves New York and goes to France to yeshiva years ago, when, when the yeshiva in France was still quite primitive. He didn't last three months. <laughs> you know, outdoor toilet, no, nah, it's not for him. Couldn't last three months, but he came back a changed boy. Because the day he arrived, he went into the office and said to the mashpia, he said to the dean, I need to call my mother. Which phone can I use? And to his total surprise, the dean said to him, you need to call your mother. He said, yeah, I got to call her, tell her I arrived. You need to call your mother. He got over his surprise and he understood what the dean was saying. He wasn't a, he wasn't a foolish boy. So he corrected himself and he said, my mother needs me to call her. Which phone can I use? And the dean said, oh, now you're talking like a mensch. Why would you? Why would you plagiarize your mother's need and call it yours? A teenage boy does not need to call his mother. It's not in the nature of a teenage boy, unless he needs money. It, it wasn't true. It was not a true statement. I need to call my mother. No, you don't. The reason you should call is because your mother needs to hear from you. The same is true with all religion. I need to be good. I need to be holy. I need to be religious. No, I don't. I don't. So my grandfather says, you have to keep kosher. You got to go to shul. And I say, I thought about it and I've come to the conclusion that I really don't need to. Well, do you want to suffer in Gehenna and burn in hell? <laughs> You're threatening me, which means you have nothing more to say. So I'm right. I don't need to. If this is such a dramatic change in psychology but also in theology. I don't need anything. I'm a guest. It's the creator who is needy. You don't create a universe for no purpose. So the creator is after something. The creator is trying to achieve something. And we're here to help. But we don't need anything. So look, look at where it leaves me. I am free of burdens. I don't need anything. I don't need to be good. I don't need to achieve. I don't need to accomplish. I don't need anything. It's all bogus. And don't threaten me. It doesn't work anymore. <laughs> you know, in the olden days, 
the farmer wakes up his son and says, come, we have to go work. And the kid says, why? He says, because it's late in the season. If we don't get the seeds in, there'll be no harvest and we will starve to death. So the kid jumps out of bed and goes to work. What do you say to your child today when you wake him up in the morning? Come on, it's late. You got to catch the bus. The bus to where? To school. Why do I have to go to school? Well, because you, you know, you got to get a, you got to get into a good college. You got to get a good job. You got to make a good living so you can pay the mortgage. Well, why do I have to do any of that? Well, if you don't have a house and you don't pay the mortgage, you're going to be out on the streets. And you're going to catch a disease and die. Because <laughs> well, that's why I have to get up now and catch a bus. <laughs> it's far fetched. And besides, I won't die. I'll be on welfare. <laughs> it's not working anymore. So on the one hand, psychologically, I am completely liberated. I can breathe. I got no problems. I've got nothing to prove. I've got nothing to accomplish. Really, I am a totally free agent. On the other hand, God needs me. So I am not needy, but I am needed. Doesn't that start to make a little sense? Life is starting to make sense. I don't even know how we functioned until today. You're born into the world, and now you have to. What? What? Did I agree to this? Did I sign a contract? <laughs> the Rebbe has been telling us this for many years. But it took a while to sink in. If you ask me for me, I don't need to be born. Thank you very much. Don't do me no favors. And if I'm not born, I'll never complain. Ella, so why am I here? Because I am necessary. I am needed. I am not needy. You might even say, the person who says, I need to be religious or I need to succeed is playing God. A human being doesn't need. God needs. So if you start thinking that you need, you, you, you have a God complex. <laughs> You're not God. You don't need. But he needs you. So you're absolutely indispensable and you have no problems. I like that. It's a very good combination. So every minute of my existence is infinitely valuable on a divine cosmic level. And I have no problems. Ooh, that's a relief. So in, in simple terms, if I'm going to translate what I understand you to be saying, you're suggesting that there's been a fundamental shift, especially among the youth, where need-based living, in other words, hyper-individualistic, um, you know, 
focus on self is just not cutting it anymore. And the only thing that's working today, because all facades have been shattered, is that which was always the main motivator of the human being, because that's the story of mankind, which is purpose. I I'm just going to use the word purpose for simplistic purpose. Good, no, good, good. Purpose. I find that to be fascinating. Um, I just have two quick thoughts on that. And then tell me, Rabbi, I don't want to stop your flow. So if it's better if I jump well, in and... You know, because every yeah, it's your show. No, no, really not. It's 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 very weird to hear from you. Um, you know, a lot of times I speak to people in the so-called older generation, and they'll complain that millennials are the worst. You know, there's no loyalty, there's no integrity. It's all about me, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's very interesting because at one point we were looking for some staff, and I interviewed probably twenty or twenty-five people. And every single one of them said the same thing, which got me thinking. When I asked them why they left their previous company, which is the obvious question, they said, I no longer felt challenged. I no longer felt like I was making a meaningful contribution. And I thought to myself, I don't know who's advising you, but that's pretty bad guidance because the last thing your potential new employer wants to hear from you is that it's now his job to provide you with enough challenges to keep you stimulated, motivated, and self-actualized. I have a job I need to get done. Are you in or are you out? And it started, I started, so I started thinking about this and then I realized something, I think very much in line with what you're saying. Young people today would forfeit job security and a high paid salary for meaningful impact, to feel needed, to feel like they're making a difference. It's not a negative, it's something incredibly positive if you get to it. What they're really saying is, I wanna reach my full potential because that's why I'm here. And I would, for, I would exchange that with what my parents and grandparents would never have exchanged it for, which is job security, et cetera. I think that's, if I can say so, I think it's an expression of what you're saying. People desperately want to know that they are needed and they'll give up their own needs to know that they're needed. This is exactly the way God wants us to be. Now when Avraham is, you know, God calls Avraham and Avraham says, Hineni. Hineni now takes on a whole new meaning. Hineni means I'm available. <laughs> I'm unemployed. I got, I got no needs. So if you need me to do something, please. Give me something to do. Hineni, I am free. I am otherwise unemployed. Because, so even I need to eat. Really, when you think about it, that's like that boy plagiarizing his mother's need. You didn't design yourself to eat. And there are times when you desperately want to go without food or without drink. Sometimes you want to go without breathing because you want to do, do some deep sea diving. And you got to keep coming up because you need to breathe. I didn't ask for this. It's a handicap. Nobody asks for a handicap. So why do I need to eat? Because I was designed by the creator to be dependent on food. I don't like the idea. So don't call it my need. 
any time a human being eats, he is doing what God designed him to do. It's a whole new insight into into the shame shamayim. Yeah, it's a fascinating. In the high holiday service, we talk about Avinu Makenu, God Almighty, right? Our Father, our King. Asay Imanu, do for us. And then we say, Lemancha, for your sake. Really? How pretentious. But the truth is, based on your explanation, it's exactly, that's precise. It's not my need, it's yours. So when a person says, I need to eat, it's plagiarism. You see, and you're, you're playing God. What, you designed yourself to eat? Do you know that famous story about the sage who saw this ugly man at the side of the road? And he said to him, boy, that's pretty ugly. <laughs> and the man said, don't complain to me. Complain to my maker. And he wasn't as ugly anymore. Because for the first time in his life, he admitted to being created. He admitted that he is not God. And the ugliness that he was that he was displaying was was that arrogance thinking that he was God. Once he admitted that he didn't make himself ugly, he wasn't as ugly anymore. So it's simply a matter of not playing God. You need to eat, you need to sleep, you need a job, you need to get to heaven. None of that is true. God designed you to eat, so you have to eat. Nobody asked you. God designed you to sleep, you have to sleep. So sleeping is a godly thing to do. And you turn around and say, no, no, I need to sleep. Not nice. Be nice. <laughs> so this changes our entire psychological orientation. I'm going to suffer if I don't get what I need. <laughs> I don't need. It's the end of suffering. Now, if I take God really seriously, the way I should, because after all, he is the creator. If I took him seriously as I should, I may develop a feeling that if he wants something, then I must do it. Like, how can I not? Like, you know, the expression, your, your wish is my command. Not I need it, but knowing that you need it, it's as if I have no choice but to do it because I take you so seriously. That's beautiful. That will never cause depression, anxiety, dysfunction. On the contrary, you're so healthy. This is where we're headed. This is where we're going. That God will be recognized finally as the one who is the needy one. And we are here to partner with him, to serve him, to further his project, his purpose in creation. And what is that purpose? To become one with us.
was talking recently to some guy who was a really thoughtful guy, and he was wondering, why did God give us freedom of choice? All the answers he's heard, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't compute. Freedom of choice is a terrible thing. People can kill because freedom of choice. People can steal freedom of choice. What would be terrible if God just made us good? Well, we wouldn't appreciate the good. Oh, come on, that's pathetic. In order to help me appreciate good, millions of people have to be killed and murdered. And it doesn't, no, it doesn't work. The fact is that we've, we have freedom of choice in a very limited area of life. Freedom of choice applies only to moral choices, not to anything else. So you don't have freedom of choice to uh, be born or not, to be male or female, to be in this generation or some other generation, to be tall or short, to be strong or weak. We have no choice in these things at all. Where do we have freedom of choice? Only in moral issues, which means only in our response to him. And this makes a lot of sense. If God would decide which shoes I'm going to buy, I wouldn't mind. If God decides who I marry, I won't mind. If God decides how many children I'm going to have, I don't mind. In fact, that would be much better. So why the need for freedom of choice? God can make all the decisions for us, and that would be good, except for one thing. He can't make us love him, because that's not love. He can't make us relate to him. That's not a relationship. So if he wants a relationship, he has to give us freedom of choice. The choice to respond to him or not, to love him or hate him, to believe in him or ignore him. He, it's necessary because otherwise it's not the real thing. If he makes me love him, I don't love him. So our relationship with God is becoming much more real. Now, looking back at how religion treated God, it is so mechanical, it's so inhumane. And so God gets a very bad reputation. Why would you want to love a God like that? Who is invulnerable, who doesn't need anything, and yet puts you through hell. So we are definitely headed in a very good direction. That's very, that's very interesting. That was actually one of the most interesting areas I, I discovered in the Rebbe's thinking. And this came to light, especially in the 60s and 70s, when, you know, for the first time, the the sort of conformist um uniform community traditional mold or setting of religion which was 
the institutional Judaism of the synagogue membership and all of that, that was the first time I think in relatively recent history where the system was threatened and essentially dismantled. And most of Jewish leadership was decrying this as the beginning of the end. And, uh, and the Rebbe saw it differently. The Rebbe actually um, said that this is just the beginning of something wildly different, much more authentic and organic. But if you think about it, really, if you lived in biblical times, and if you violated Shabbos, you were, you know, your life was taken, or if you murdered, or if you did whatever it might be. But furthermore, there were certain spiritual divine punishments, such that if a person did certain sins, they were affected almost, uh, you know, relatively immediately and in a very visible and direct way. What type of free will can you talk of in that generation, in that era, in that that context? It's not free will. It's the choice between staying alive or not. So, okay, so I did Shabbos. But today when, so when someone keeps Shabbos, it's a very different Shabbos. And I think that's what you're suggesting. It's, it's coming from within. But, but if I can, Rabbi Friedman, I think I would link both points. Because the point of not acting out of need, but rather because I'm needed, further emphasizes my choice. If I need it, it's not my choice. You created me with this need. I have to follow the need. But if you have a need, and therefore I am needed, now I feel like I'm in the driver's seat. I can give. I can be a part of this. I can make a contribution out of my free will. Mm -hmm. But the question, just to bring this down a little bit, would you say that the world around us is becoming more, more open to God? And if so, where do you see that? Because when you do look at the facade, some would argue the opposite, um, you know, especially once you see how the different political parties are organized in the states. It seems to be one of the underlying points of tension is religion or at least religious issues, organized religion. But maybe you'd argue that, that, that that's what it's about. It's about organized religion or not. And we're seeing the slow dissolution of what we call organized religion. Anyway, what do you think about that? I think there, there has been a lot of talk of, about God, Ten Commandments, very little about religion. Nobody is quoting Bible. You know, the Bible thumpers and, the, and the, nobody listens to them. So don't preach religion, but talk about God. That is very healthy. In fact, religion should start talking more about God and less about reward and punishment and, and all that stuff. But I think that back then, when people were immediately punished and, and saw the consequences of their behavior, what kind of freedom of choice did they have? They were stiff-necked. See, now, now it makes sense. We had to be stiff-necked to, to have freedom of choice back then. As the counterbalance. I don't care. You don't scare me. Yeah, and then, <laughs> now, let, let's talk about another thing, also futuristic. Another assumption that has been historically, universally accepted and assumed, life is temporary, death is permanent. There's nothing so permanent like death. And there's nothing so fleeting and temporary like life. 
you know, I'm already depressed. <laughs> How in the world life is fleeting, temporary, unreal, but death, oh, death is reliable. Death is permanent. Death is for certain. That is so depressing. It's a morbid way of looking at life. And it's not true. It can't be true. Life is forever. Death is temporary. People are listening. People are hearing it. There's no pushback. Like, what are you talking about? I'll tell you what I'm talking about. What exactly is death? <laughs> we think we know, and it and it scares us, and it motivates us, and we have no idea. What exactly is death? The soul is alive, which means it can't die. It's like saying life can die. No, life can't die. Water can't be dry. <laughs> Salt can't go bad. Life can't die. It's an oxymoron. So the soul, being a living thing, can't die. So death must be the body. But really, the body was never alive. It borrowed life from the soul when the soul was in the body. But without the soul, the body has no life. So can you really say the body died? In other words, does life ever end? Any life at all? Does it ever end? The answer is no. How can it? Even scientifically, does any energy ever disappear? No, it just changes form. Life can't die. So the question, is there life after death? What a confused question. What are you saying? Is there life after death? The question is, what is death? So what really dies? Torah told us a long time ago. What dies is your contract. The soul has a contract for how long it's going to be in the body. Down to the last minute. When that contract runs out, then the body goes back to where it came from and the soul goes back to where it came from. So what died? Your allotted time. You ran out of time. You didn't run out of life. So the soul continues to live because it can't die. But not only that, it can't be anything other than a soul. It doesn't become electricity. It doesn't become a virus. Actually, maybe it does. <laughs> if you're really, really evil and you lose your soul, what does that mean? Your soul is no longer the same personality. It has now become some other kind of energy. But when we say the soul continues to live, it means. Its character doesn't change, 
its relationships doesn't change, its um, its memories don't change. It's still the same person. So if your grandfather was a very stubborn man while he was alive, he's still stubborn. And if he was friendly and, and, and funny, he still is. And if he shows up in your dreams, you'll see it. He's still good old grandpa. Meaning that he still cares about you. His relationships are still important to you. Everything in life is experienced in the soul. And the soul doesn't die. Now, the soul without the body is not happy. You know, the expression rest in peace. No soul rests in peace because it wants to go back to its body. Without the body, you are not needed. The soul in heaven has all its needs met. But it's not needed. It can't serve God. Only with a body can you serve God and participate in God's vast eternal plan. So the souls in heaven are all waiting to come back to their bodies. The same body they had when they performed their mitzvahs. So the body that decomposed is going to recompose. If it can come apart, it can also come back together. I heard this joke. Now, old musicians don't die. They just decompose. <laughs> But if you can decompose, you can recompose. If God can make a body out of nothing, he can return the body that already existed and recompose it. The future is life will continue. Death will end. Because it's not necessary. Life is necessary. Death is not. It serves some purpose, but when that purpose has been achieved, it will no longer be necessary. So we have a completely different picture of what death is. We need to tell children these days, what happened? So many people are dying. What happened to grandpa? What happened to grandma? Where? And we say, oh, he's with God now. Kids hate God. Why is he with God? Should be with me. Oh, God took him. <laughs> well, I hate God. It's a bad message. The real message is he is wherever he is, but he's still who he was, and he still cares about you, and he still watches what you're doing, and he still has an opinion <laughs> about what you're doing. So, yeah, grandpa is far away, but he's still grandpa. He's in heaven? Yes, he's in heaven. Is it a nice place? Nice place. Nobody wants to be there. So don't ever say, oh, he's in a better place. No, not a better place. Really, think about it. You say to a child, grandpa went to a better place. Well, then why can't I go? I mean, all these messages, they're so, 
they're so inappropriate. You got to tell a kid whose grandfather passed away. You got to tell him. Grandpa is jealous of you. He wants to come back to be with you. And he will. Nobody is happy to stay in heaven. It's a nice retirement home, but we don't believe in retiring. <laughs> You're saying that this idea is changing. People are more receptive to it. How do you, what are the practical, um, what's the practical ramification, if you will, of this idea for people? How does it change the way they live life? Or, oh, I can imagine it changes the way they, you know, approach with momentary, temporary, you know, respite or, you know, departure, as you would call it. But how does it change the life we're living? It gives life so much more substance. The notion that life is very brief and then you die. Well, then, then, then what is life? It, it, it becomes flimsy. It becomes insignificant compared to death. That takes a little of the uh, enthusiasm for life out of out of uh, out of our out of our minds, out of our hearts. I mean, how how intensely are you going to? use your life if you know that it's only temporary and that there's a better world waiting somewhere that's horrible but for many that's their motivation that that actually ironically becomes their motivation for living more focused and more righteous lives the yeah, well, knowledge that where we are now is temporary um, you know, I, I mean, it's a fascinating thing because the Mishnah and Avot tells us one thing and then the other, meaning they're different. There's a debate. One says this world is merely a precursor, an antechamber to the next. And Rabbi Yaakov, who I, you know, I personally quote him much more often, says that this world, uh, you know, the entire world to come can't compare to one hour of good deeds, which is the message you're sharing. Yeah, so, so to clear that up, the statement that this world is only the um, the uh, the hallway towards the world to come, that's not talking about heaven. That's talking about this world as it's going to be when we fix it. So yes, this world is a preparation for the improvement of this world. In other words, it's going to get a lot better. <laughs> that's the message. Uh, when it says one hour of life in this world is better than all, that's talking about heaven. Let me, if you if you will, let me. What? Is, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I don't want to. I don't want to shift. Uh, I don't want to shift conversation un unless we finish the previous point. But I did. There's a lot of people that I've been talking to of the past period of time, and they have been struggling, this is to go back to the beginning, with relationships, with parenting, with, uh, you know, especially spousal and uh, parenting, I guess. 
Um, and you know, you opened with something very thought provoking, but I wonder if you're happy for us to sort of drill down into the topic of relationships, because I know that while you have so much to share on all topics, relationships is a particularly complex uh, topic. And it's a, it's a topic that I find you have such illuminating ideas to share. Um, it, it, it applies. A, sorry? It applies very, very, mm -hmm. very uh, significantly to relationships. If I'm needy, you're in trouble. In any marriage, if I am needy, well, then you're in trouble. You either satisfy my needs or get out of here. Once in a while, I'll do you a favor just to keep you going in, in doing what I need. It's a nasty relationship. And we're convinced that that's as good as it gets. <laughs> it's got to get a lot better than that. Actually, the only time you get married is when you have no needs. As long as you feel needy, do not get married. Don't inflict this on another person. It's not nice. I'm going to marry you and I'm going to dump all my neediness on you. And if you don't respond properly, you're the failure. Oh, no, 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 no. See, God created the world in, in order to, ach to achieve a relationship. But he was God before that. Which means he was not needy. He didn't come into this world dumping his needs on you. His only need is to have you. That's not needy. That's noble. You see, the kid who said, I need to call my mother. In addition to being wrong, it's uninspiring. You need to call your mother, so go find a phone. If you say, my mother needs me to call her, everyone will rush to help you because you're doing something noble. So if it's your need, I'll handle it. This is not, this is not <laughs> earth shattering or life changing or, but if you're doing something noble, everyone rallies around you. They wanna help you and they're jealous of you. Everybody wants to do something noble. So if you're getting married, you have to do it the way God did. First become perfect. so that you have no needs to dump on another person. Then come to the person and say, by myself, as perfect as I am, there's no goodness in it. Perfect is perfect, nothing good about it. Imagine two perfect people living side by side. Nothing good will ever happen. So when you think you're perfect, then it's time to get married. When you don't want to be perfect anymore, 
time to get married. When you're about as perfect as you really want to be, now it's time to get married. But you still want to get perfecter, don't get married. You're too selfish. So how do we get to where we're not going to inflict our needs on our spouse? The best solution is realize that you have no needs. What's with all these needs? You don't have needs. Let it go. On the other hand, if your spouse needs you, well, now it's a party. But it's a simple example of you have to make lunch. You, you, you need to eat lunch. So you go into the kitchen. You go, well, what, what are you going to do? You open a can, a jar, leftovers, whatever. But somebody calls and says, can I come over for lunch? You cook up a storm. Now it's a party. But if I could push back for just a moment here, ostensibly what brings one person into contact with another in a deeper way, not in an acquaintance way or in a transactional way, is, is an attraction, is a sense that this is a person who, for example, I'd like to spend the rest of my life with. That doesn't just happen. It, it's a result and a derivative of attributes or qualities or virtues, advantages or things that do talk to the lower model you were describing. The model of someone thinking, this is what I feel when I'm around this person. This is what I can get. This is what, this is how I can grow, et cetera, et cetera. Whatever word a person puts after this is the fill in the blank, why I'm attracted to this person. The relationship is founded and begins at least, originates in need or in want, which is probably a variation of the same flawed thinking. So, how do you get from that place to a different place, to the place of how am I needed? I, yeah. That's very good. That's very good. You're, 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 you're getting right to the jugular of what marriage is. Every relationship is the result of an attraction and an interdependence. God created rich people and poor people so that they would need each other. God created teachers and students, they need each other. God created healers and, and, and those who need healing so that, we're, so that we're interdependent. None of that is a marriage. What makes marriage unique is that it is not about anything. It's beyond things. It's just us. Of course, the initial attraction is, is, is all about things. I like your style. I like your body language. I like your looks. I like your family. I like your sense of humor. I like your maturity. I like your strength. Yeah, all, all very good. Don't marry any of that marry the person 
So nothing, nothing about your spouse is more important than your spouse. See, in business, that's not true. <laughs> in business, the reason you're a partner with this person in the business is because he knows the business. If he doesn't know the business, he is not important. In marriage, it's the opposite. Marriage means we, two human beings merging, not about anything. But again, how does, how does one reach that state? It's not the natural or organic or original state, because that would be someone just walking over to any random stranger saying, tell me your needs, I'm here, hineni. We're not talking about that scenario. We're talking about a scenario where the beginning, the genesis was in things, to put it simply. So how does one move or transcend that or transition from that? It's not, doesn't seem like a seamless transition. I know many couples who 50 years down the road have not made that transition. So it's not automatic. It requires a paradigm shift, a, an existential shift, something that's, how, how does that happen? When does it happen? How can one make that? Unfortunately, you're right. It doesn't happen because we don't teach. We don't teach what marriage is. We assume everybody gets married, find somebody, get married. Nobody tells you what it is, what it's supposed to be, how it's supposed to be, and it's a tragedy. The greatest, best marriage in the world was Adam and Chava. You know how long they were married? <laughs> 970 years. 30. 930 years. And then she outlived him. Chava lived to be a thousand oldest person in the world, right? So to be married 930 years, you, you got to be able... <laughs> that's, that's a record, right? Now, the amazing thing was they had nobody else to marry. It's not like they made a choice. It was just them. And God said, get married. So they did. What was the attraction? I don't know that there was an attraction. There was nobody else. <laughs> so what was the point? What was the purpose? The purpose was, as it says, to become one. To become one, not to remain two. So does that mean you're going to help each other in your needs? You're going to you're going to complete each other. You're going to perfect each other. No, you're going to become one. That's marriage, not a roommate. So if we would prepare young people before they get married and let them know what it's all about, it would be a lot better. But we do the exact opposite. 
We raise children to believe in things, in stuff, in materialism. And wanting to be happy is materialistic. The bottom line is, if you're using another person for personal benefits, you are abusing. You don't marry somebody in order to gain something. The somebody is always more important than anything. Do you have any advice, again, guidance for the young people watching or people who have been married for many years for that matter, who have, who have experienced an epiphany by virtue of the past 10 minutes, really 50 minutes, an hour and 10 minutes. Um, now they say, okay, I get what you're saying. I get what you're saying. It resonates. I understand that I've never moved beyond a constant evaluation of cost-benefit analysis, things, etc. I'm ready to make the leap. How? How do I do that? I feel almost hardwired to want things. And you're telling me I have to give all that up and become completely selfless in simple terms, really, and altruistic in order for this to really work. I need to put the person before anything they can give me. But I was only attracted to what the person could give me. So how do I make that transition? So in most cases, as we get older, we mature, we outgrow those things we thought we needed so desperately, and we start to appreciate each other, and we grow old graciously, <laughs> gracefully. Um, no guarantee that that's going to happen, but generally age and maturity brings that around. But we really should start off on the right foot. Like, what does the chassam say to the kawa? The few words, there's no vows, there's no, you know, cherish and love and obey and till death do us part, none of that, right? What does the chassam say to the kawa? You and the rest, the Kala doesn't care. He starts off by saying, you, you are betrothed to me. You are sanctified to, sanctified according to motion. It doesn't matter. He said, you. It's very different than saying, I love you. Oh, you're starting with the I? This is not good news. Any sentence that starts with I can't be good for a relationship. A relationship has to start with the word you. So here's a practical suggestion. Don't say I love you. Say you I love. It's you, not me. In marriage counseling, I often ask people, you know, 
I hear your complaints. Yes, yeah, terrible. Oh, yeah, it's horrible. Yes, it's horrible. Answer one question. Do you want to make it better? Oh, of course. Well, then go ahead. Make it better. Well, she doesn't let. He never. You can make it better. How? Stop competing. After they finish with their complaints and they're exhausted, I don't interrupt them until they're exhausted. And then at the end they say, so who's right? There's your problem. (laughs) You want to be right? Why? What kind of contest is this? The need to be right is one of those needs we got to get rid of. Why do you need to be right? Why? What will you gain by being right? Absolutely nothing, but you'll lose your spouse. So, obviously, if you get married for money, people will look down at you. Nah, that's not nice. Why is that any worse than getting married in order to prove you're right? The things we should eliminate are not all material things. There are non-material things that are just as bad, if not worse. The need to be right. The need to have your needs met. They're terrible. And they're not true. They're not true. You don't need it. So we're not asking you to sacrifice. Not even asking you to compromise. Just don't create needs that don't exist. You need to become one with your spouse. Merge. Not compete. So here's a question. I think what you were asking was, how do you go from being completely selfishly oriented to suddenly becoming altruistic? Altruistic is our greatest pleasure. We got it, we got it all wrong. We get pleasure by being selfish. Altruistic is sacrificing. No, it's not. Getting past our own needs is so liberating. Not a sacrifice. See, if we believe that we were truly needy, and now I have to give all that up for you, oh yeah, that's martyrdom. Yes, just heard this good joke. You know what's wrong with martyrdom? You don't live to enjoy it. (laughs) It's very sad. You're such a martyr and you're not even going to enjoy it. So it's it's not compromise and it's not sacrifice. And those words should never be associated with marriage. Now, some people say marriage is all about sacrifice. (laughs) Then don't get married. That's ridiculous. Oh, no, it's a matter, it's, it's all about compromise. 
that you can compromise for a half hour, not for the rest of your life. So it's not a compromise. It is the healthiest you being you. To merge with your spouse is the most natural, healthiest, most noble, and most pleasurable thing in the world. What is the sacrifice? <laughs> it's like this guy said, I was good to my wife for eight years, and I've got nothing to show for it. <laughs> so what exactly are you supposed to have to show for it? If you were good to your wife for eight years, there's one thing you would have to show for it, a happy wife. And she's not happy. So you were not so good to her for eight years. Because if you were, she would be a very happy wife, which would make you a very happy husband. So it's not, it's not out of our nature. It's the truest nature. See, th that's the beauty of this whole idea. In religion, it's always been, you have needs, but too bad. God's the boss, and you do what he needs. So you sacrifice, you martyr yourself, you, 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 you shut yourself down. Nobody cares what you think or what you want. This is God's world, and if you behave yourself, you can stay. If not, get out. <laughs> Very nasty picture, right? But what we're saying now is nothing goes against your nature. Nothing. You should never do anything against your nature. It's not necessary. Giving up your needs? <laughs> you don't have needs. So what is your nature? Your nature is that you were created out of God's need and you're his partner in creation. Is that a sacrifice? Is that martyrdom? What is that? That's just you. Learning Tanya would be a very good idea to improve your marriage. Because when you learn Tanya, you learn two things. First of all, that human beings are much more noble than we believe. And secondly, that God is much more human than you think. In a, in a wholly positive way. God is not as otherworldly. And you are not as worldly. That's a good combination. That's why we make such a good shidduch. The Jewish people and God. It's a good shidduch. We're a little more like God than we think, and God is a little more like us than we think. So, one, sorry, one step, so to bring that down, one step more, and then, uh, you know, I really appreciate we've gone a bit over time. Thank you. But I, 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 I will wrap it up, you know, in deference to your time. The, this thing that you, this, I, so the, 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 the pushback could be, what do you mean I don't have needs? I have the need, you know, Abraham Maslow, you know, mapped out the hierarchy of needs. Um, you know, 
maybe I didn't create those needs, so they're not my needs, as you put it so beautifully, but they're still needs nonetheless that need to be met. So, you know, even something as simple as being loved, being cherished, being validated, being acknowledged, being heard, being understood, let alone, you know, the basic physical needs. So in a practical, just to bring it down one step lower, as it were, to make it somewhat more concrete for people out there, what, what, how would, should tomorrow be different than today in real terms? In real terms, tomorrow is not going to be about me. First of all, I'm pretty, I'm, I'm pretty fine the way I am. There's no need to be so hyper-focused on me. Secondly, even the needs that I still have, they're not really mine. So I'm living out the life that God gave me, and I'm fine with that. Why do I need to be heard? Why do I need to be validated? Why do I need to be loved? Those things are not the end in themselves. Okay, you're validated. Now what? But, you know, we need to be forgiven. Okay, fine, you're forgiven. Get lost. <laughs> what happens after you're forgiven? I don't want to hear from you anymore. So what good is the forgiveness? We need to be loved, validated, cherished, uh, whatever, complimented, because we want to become one. Those are just steps in the right direction. If you love me and don't hate me, if you validate me and don't uh, reject me, if you, you know, if you bring me in rather than throw me out, then we're going to become one. The objective is oneness. Hashem Echad. It's all about oneness, not about me getting something from you. That's, that's abusive. So what do you really want? A hundred different things? You're crazy. That's impossible. You're making yourself crazy. You can't need a hundred things. Just the thought of it is enough to put you into a depression. <laughs> it's like people say, 613 commandments? Ooh, that's too much. Those are his needs. Don't worry about it. <laughs> but if you have 613 needs, boy, get yourself to a therapist quickly. Overload. So... You don't need a lot of things. You need one thing. And there are many ways of getting there. Love is one of them. But love is the goal? Love is not a goal. To be loved? And then what? It's like, I'll marry you for money? Oh, that's nasty. I'll marry you for love? Ah, that's nice. <laughs> no, it's not. It's exactly the same thing. I just have a different price. This guy charges money. I charge love. You don't love me? It's all over. All I want is the love. And look at how nasty it is, really. My first book came out in 1990. 
Don't, doesn't anyone blush anymore? It was about relationships and borders and stuff. I, I wanted a different title. I wanted it to be called Shut Up, I Love You. Because that's really the problem behind every dysfunctional marriage. I married you for love. Remember, we were in love and we got married for love. So I married you for the love. I never asked you for your opinion. I don't want to hear your moods or your your opinions and your and your sensitivities and your fetching. I didn't marry you for that. I just married you for the love. So stick to the love. Everything else is uninvited. So I want your love. I don't want the rest of you. It's exactly the same as if I marry you for money. Yeah, that's a very. If I marry very... you for money. It means I don't want. Yeah. In other words, I, when you say I'm marrying for love, you mean I marry you for how your love makes me feel. It's another level of self-service. Yeah. yeah, I love love. So if you can give me love, I love it. Right. Do I love you? Right. Uh, no. <laughs> I never agreed to put up with all of you. I just agreed to put up with your love. That's where it all falls apart. So the first practical thing is, don't marry for love. This couple came to me and asked me to do their wedding. They said, we're very much in love, so we would like to get married. I said, oh, too late. Too late. You're already in love? Well, then that's it. Where are you going to go from there? So what would you get married for? You're getting married for love? You already have the love. You don't need to get married. So love is a thing, just like money, just like honor, like yichas. All of these things do not make up a marriage. They may lead to a marriage. You know, it's nice to marry someone you love but not for the love. Mm. So love is not, is not the goal. Mm. Love is the method. And in general, love means enjoying that which is important. People think love makes importance. If I love you, you're important. That is so evil. My love makes you important? How arrogant is that? And then when I stop loving you, you're garbage. We've made way too much out of love. It's very interesting because um, there's a fellow named Alain de Botan. He's a very well-known philosopher, uh, Jewish, by the way. Um, and he speaks a lot about this theme as well, that the concept of romantic love has completely, uh, utterly undermined relationships in this presenting it because it portrays a certain type of perfectionism and ideal that's simply unattainable and, and it's not true to reality. Um, so let me, let me, let's conclude with one final question. In your experience, because you've been studying this topic for many, many, many years. I mean, 
you know, your, your, that it's a classic for anyone who hasn't purchased it yet. Please do do yourself a favor. Why doesn't anyone blush anymore? Um, and I quote it regularly. So you've observed the past rabbi, what should we say? 30, 40 years of up close, deep contemplation analysis of relationships. Are we getting better at it or are we getting worse? What's the good news if there is any? The good news is that all intimacy has been taken out of relationships. It started in the 60s, actually, when people decided that love should be free. <laughs> free love. Free of commitment, free of attachment, free of purpose, free of intimacy. Now, all these years later, there's a backlash. Where's the intimacy? It's terrible. Married couples who are happily married, individually, they feel alone in the world. That means they have not bonded. They're living side by side. That's not what we need. We don't need roommates. So there's a very powerful line from a popular song by Billy Joel. The line is, these people are sitting at a bar. They're, they're sharing a drink they call loneliness, but it's better than drinking alone. Loneliness can be alleviated by a roommate, but you're still alone. The only thing that takes away the feeling of aloneness is marriage. Therefore, should a man leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife and become one? Mother and father doesn't do it. The best relationship with your parents you're still alone in the world. The only relationship in which you become merged and never alone again is marriage. And when you hear marriages that are called successful, and yet you're feeling alone, something's seriously wrong. So the fact that people are now demanding more intimacy looking for solutions, that, that's, that's a positive, hopeful sign. Wow. Well. We have a Sunday night program for VIPs that you might be interested in. It's informal. It's questions and answers. It's conversation. It's really relaxed. It's really pleasant enjoyable, informative, and uh, kind of community-like. It's a Sunday night program. There's a um, Wednesday morning program for the VIPs, and there's a Wednesday night program. All of it, just conversation, casual, laid back, unscripted. So join us, take a look. Click uh, the link below and see which 
which of the three suits you best, and join us for some enjoyable conversation.